You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello, you're listening to Wonder Cupboard, a science podcast that asks the question, if knowledge is Tom, who is Jerry? My name's Ian Bridgman. My name is Elena Falco. And what are we going to be talking about this week? Well, sadly not Tom and Jerry. No. That's very sad. We're going to talk about uh, Galileo Galilei. Ah, from, you know, who we all know from the song. <laughs> yes. I, I think probably most people's first experience of that name is probably from Bohemian Rhapsody. And I still don't understand why it's in there in the first place. I don't know either. I don't know if there's a reason well, or whether it thinking? just sounded good. Yeah. It does sound good. I mm. think the repetition of the name is quite appealing. Mm. Also, I have a fun fact about Galileo's name. Okay. So Galilei, the word mm. Galilei, comes from another guy whose first name was Galileo. Okay. Who started the family. Oh, okay. So his name was Galileo Buonaiuti. Uh-huh. But for reasons, then the rest of the family took his first name and made that become their last name because they liked him very much. <laughs> uh, and so everyone else, you know, all the descendants were called Galilei. And then Galileo's dad went, well, you know, that was a good guy. Let's call him the same. <laughs> so his name is Galileo Galilei because of that. That was really kind of his father. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that gets you bullied in school. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's very sad. So what you're saying is that his first name was Galileo, but his middle name wasn't also Galileo, and his surname wasn't Figaro. No. Okay. That's one myth debunked. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to tell you a bit about him. So obviously he was a scientist. Most people know that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go on about biographical details much, just a little bit to give you a picture. Mm. So he was born in 1564, at a time when Italy was all divided in small states, Yeah, basically. He was born near Pisa, so that's in Tuscany. So it wasn't actually a country it wasn't called actually. Italy, it was lots of little countries. Yes, yeah. and, uh, the, yes and it wouldn't be for a good 300 years. So. Mm. And so he was born in Tuscany. That was under the rule of the family uh, Medici, the house of Medici. So they had been in power for a long time at that point, and they were promoters of the arts and humanities. Mm-hmm. And it was a fairly stable environment, and that's the same environment where Florence became what we know it is. So the Uffizi were built, all the beautiful buildings in Florence were built, the Medici were the family who promoted the Renaissance in, in Florence. So it was a, a very kind of beautiful environment to be born in. He was born in a fairly humble family. Mm-hmm. So his dad was a musician. And this is going to matter a lot mm-hmm. in, in his life. His name was Vincenzo. He was mostly a composer, but he would also teach music just to make ends meet. Being a musician at the time was not a glamorous job by any mean, but he liked it. And he, has a, he had a very specific way of looking at it. So at the time, music was related to mathematics, as in mathematical rules 
also regulated how you should compose music. And these rules had been established first by Pythagoras, so in Greek, ancient Greek times. Mm -hmm. And they, were, they had remained the same throughout. Hey, guys, uh, we're, we're, let's get some tunes at this party. Hmm, who should we get them from? Oh, the guy with the triangle. <laughs> yeah, that'll be cool. Lame party, guys. <laughs> Nerds. Nerds. <laughs> So Vincenzo didn't like this nerd business and basically out-nerded them. His idea of music didn't have to do with mathematics. He thought that since you make music on actual instruments, you should consider the physics of sound as opposed to just these canons that had been established by some guy. Mm -hmm. And so he, he studied the way music was actually made in the instruments. And he had this workshop that was basically like a physics lab in, in many respects. And he would try different ways of tuning instruments, interactions between these settings and stuff like that. So I'm going to characterise this as being the Tuscan Abbey Road studios. Basically, <laughs> yes. He was in a, a highly experimental at the time. Okay. And Galileo was around there all the time. One of the things Galileo is famous for was his contribution to the scientific method which we're going to talk about in a minute. And he learned from his dad how to tune the lute, but also how to experiment in the first place. So, you know, you isolate a variable in, in a certain way, and then you see where that takes you. You make one change, you see how that reflects on, on the result. And this is the basics of the scientific method in physics. I'm going to go into the scientific method a little bit now. Mm -hmm. In its very general formulation, then in practice it changes a bit, but in general what you do is you see a phenomenon in nature, you come up with a hypothesis as to why that phenomenon happens in that specific way. So, for example, the sun goes down mm -hmm. because it's being eaten by a giant space worm every evening. Exactly. So that would be your hypothesis. It is my hypothesis. That is, your, <laughs> that is your hypothesis. Then you have to test that hypothesis, right? So how do you test it? It's you... kind of difficult, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I've tried looking. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of how I came up with the hypothesis in the first place. So that I might ask work. around. You, you can ask around, but that's appealing to the authority, and we don't like that. Yeah, screw the authority. That's how Vincenzo got start in the first place <laughs> so yeah you screw the authority and you have to test your hypothesis right mm -hmm. so what i would do if i thought that there was a giant worm that was eating the sun mm -hmm. would be try and toss other things into the worm's mouth and see where the worm you know presents himself mm -hmm. right so what you do is you test your hypothesis on a different kind of phenomenon not the sun anymore but i don't know what would a giant worm eat don't know. Pies? Yeah, probably. You throw pies at him. Or cake. Mm -hmm. Maybe giant worms would like cake. Um, Millennium Falcon? <laughs> the Millennium Falcon, yes. Nerd. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you test it on something else. And if it works on something else, so if the worm actually eats the cake, you go, well, you know, it was eating the cake, so the something might actually have something to go for it. Something tells me that um, these experiments wouldn't go very well. Mm. But, you know, others have done. And then, you know, we come up with a lot. So if the worm had eaten the pies, 
your law is, every time something disappears behind the horizon, it's because of the worm. Yes. And that's your law of nature. Yeah. Okay. So this is a scientific method. And the way Galileo developed it had to do with another Greek guy who was bossing everyone around still. Ugh. It wasn't and, with triangles again, was it? Nah, it was with uh, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so the accepted theory at the time was uh, Aristotle's theory. Mm-hmm. Okay, close your eyes and imagine the following world. My eyes are closed. Very I'm primed good. for imagination. I, I, I can confirm that. In your Aristotelian world, you've got Celestial spheres that go round and round around Earth. And they're made of this lovely substance that nobody really knows what it is, but it's kind of ephemeral and beautiful, like the wings of angels. Nobody really knows what it is. And they call it ether, because it sounds so lovely. And then you get to stupid Earth, which I was is in mindfully the med- meditating there. Well, I was just... uh, Carry on. Earth! (laughs) It's just there in the middle with a stupid stuff that is not celestial or anything. It's just stuff. Okay. Stuff is made of four things. Stuff is made of earth, air, fire, and water. Okay. They're mixed in different ways depending on what stuff you're considering. And the way things move has to do with their weight. They might be light or heavy, depending Mm -hmm. on what elements are inside. But also, it's a lot of similarity. So the reason why if you drop a stone, it will go towards the earth is because the stone and the earth are composed of a similar substance. This is why I'm also attracted towards um, McDonald's and kebabs uh, sometimes because I am made of McDonald's and kebabs. You, you are meat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why as a vegetarian, I am cheese. I am low quality meat. <laughs> <laughs> so this was Aristotle's theory in, in general. Galileo did not like this. So one simple starting point to explain this is the law of motion. Aristotle thought that since the weight mattered so much, when you dropped something, the speed of the fall was proportional to its weight. And Galileo said, this is bollocks. Uh, Because... What word would he have used, though? There's no easy uh, early Tuscan Italian uh, uh, equivalent. I mean, he he was quite a colourful narrator. Okay. Which we will explore (laughs) later. So I'm sure he would have had a very colourful expression for this. But also the Tuscans are famous in Italy for their uh, humour and extensive rhetoric ability, especially when it comes to swearing. Okay. So I'm sure Galileo... He had some choice words for Aristotle's theory on... Oh, yeah. ...weight. Yes. Incidentally, if somebody listening to this is from Tuscany and wants to pitch in, please do suggest 
på Galileo och sen bara Aristotle. Så so we're talking about this weight thing. So Galileo said, fine, so if I'm dropping a cannonball that weighs 10 pounds and a musket ball that weighs one pound, then the cannonball would reach the ground 10 times as fast as the musket ball. Mm. So basically, like try to picture that. There's this ball that is reaching the ground and the other one is kind of floating at one tenth <laughs> of the speed. Yeah. That doesn't sound right, it right? It doesn't sound right. And you can look at that and see that it's not right. Exactly. And, and Which what... makes it quite good mm. scientifically. And, you know, one might wonder, it's been... 1800 years since Aristotle came up with his physics. Has anyone ever tried to do something about it? Too busy walking around in togas and having a great time. Yeah, and since Galileo didn't like to wear togas, because he didn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is a recorded fact. This is a recorded fact. Okay. He actually wrote a poem called Against the Donning of the Gown. <laughs> so he, he didn't like to wear the gown. And allegedly, uh, the reason was that when men and women met, if uh, either of them was wearing a gown, then that would make it very difficult to assess each other's attractiveness <laughs> and proceed to more important matters. <laughs> and he's very explicit about this. This is not... It's, it's a very amusing piece of writing, the, yeah. against the of the gown. He also makes a slightly more serious point, which the gown at the time was a sign of status mm -hmm. uh, for professors that were in universities, and he didn't think that that was ethically acceptable. Okay. Because then it would give you the authority as opposed to put the, the burden of, of proof on you. So you wouldn't have to prove yourself because you had the gown. Okay. Well, obviously, he was very into proving himself. One of my friends sometimes wears a high-vis jacket on the tube, and <laughs> people are much kinder to him. I guess that's a similar thing. Yeah, I think Galileo would have frowned. Mm. On yes. the, upon the donning of the high-vis jacket. <laughs> so the, the legend goes that he tried this from, from the Leaning Tower of Pisa. He probably didn't. Mm -hmm. It is possible that someone, el someone else did later on and then the, the two things kind of got conflated mm. because he had this kind of attitude and, and he worked on motion. But I think that the spirit of Galileo's work is well illustrated by this anecdote. Then there was the whole telescope situation. So, he didn't invent the telescope. The person who invented the telescope was Dutch, and he used to make, uh, to make glasses, mm -hmm. so spectacles they used in order to see well. His name was uh, Hans Lippershe and he had made this telescope that had a magnifying power of three times. Except he wasn't really used for anything useful. So all they did was selling it as a toy. Okay. <laughs> so it was, it was very uh, common in Paris, for instance. People would just buy these little things as a kind of a curiosity, I suppose. Um, so Galileo heard through the grapevine that this was happening in 1609 and went, aha, this could be very useful because, first of all, military applications, because you can see ships coming in from afar and yeah. so you can prepare yourself and you, you can identify them. You don't have to them. employ the boy with the best eyesight. Exactly. <laughs> so that was a, was a good one. 
but also for trade because you have to move around and having a you know good magnifying device could be very useful. And so he thought, I can sell this thing to the court of Venice. Except he discovered that another Dutch person was about to do the same. So he, he was in the area, sort of, of Venice, and he was getting to court to present his prototype. So Galileo went, right, I need to beat them. <laughs> so it's this very Silicon Valley story where <laughs> he has to innovate before the other because the Dodger otherwise would pick him. And in 24 hours, he put together a telescope that was much better than the one that the Dutch person had put together and without having ever seen one. <laughs> so all he knew was that there were two lenses on a tube and he managed to put together a telescope that had a magnifying power of 10 times, mm -hmm. so as opposed to three, and that projected the image upright because in the original telescope you would have the image upside down because of how the lenses were made. But the way he did it, you could see it directly as you saw, you know, as the image was, yeah, you could see it upright. Yeah, good work. Great work, right? But then he had to slow down this guy somehow. <laughs> now, Galileo had a contact in the Venetian court, and it was a friar whose name was Sarpi. This friar was not particularly interested in science, but uh, he was a friend of Galileo's and he was known for his unorthodox theological ideas <laughs> to the point that some people thought he was a closet protestant. So because of this, the Vatican didn't like him very much. But Venice at the time was this progressive, exciting cosmopolitan place that actually wanted to break with tradition and they didn't have a good relationship with Rome. So it, it was a situation by which, if you are against Rome, you're with Venice, Okay. essentially. So what with his terrible fame as a theologian, he was an advisor to the Doge, who was the, basically the king in Venice. An episode on Sarpi, he was, uh, at some point he was summoned to Rome to discuss his uh, theological ideas. He didn't go because... He was not an idiot because the Inquisition didn't really reason with people, but it was more a matter of kind of pulling them apart and burning them. Yeah. So he didn't go. He stayed in Venice, but somehow they found him and they tried to kill him. So he was stabbed multiple times by a mob of people in Venice, including a stab in his head that went in through his uh, right temple and came out through the cheek and survived. Wow, that's impressive. It's insane. So he survived. He was an advisor to the Doge. So Galileo sent him a coded message saying, I have developed a telescope, stole the Doge until I'm there. <laughs> and they managed. So uh, at some point, Galileo just showed up at court with this uh, beautiful telescope that he had perfected in the meantime because obviously the first time was the first one was a prototype and he offered it as a gift to the Dodger so instead of proposing a commercial agreement he just went look what I've done for you <laughs> the Dodger was very pleased with the gift so he got the job of making telescopes for uh, the Republic of Venice 
And he also got tenure in Pisa for life. So the Dodger would just pay for him to do research in Pisa as long as more gifts were coming. <laughs> Basically, I'll pay for you as long as I get first cut of all the cool stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, eventually, he didn't take... Like, he took up the offer, but eventually he got a better offer from the University of Florence. So he that didn't really happen, but... He was offered. And the reason why he got this amazing offer from the University of Florence was that he used the telescope for scientific reasons, because obviously Galileo didn't really care about the military applications. So he managed to see things such as mountains and valleys on the surface of the moon. So craters. Cool. Moon craters. Sunspots. So those areas, darker areas that you see I'm surprised he managed to do that without destroying his eyes. Well, he did become blind towards the end of uh, his life. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's involved, but that might have mm. helped. And by the way, while he was becoming blind, he still managed to write one of the most important things that he published. And again, we'll get to that later. Also, he managed to see the moons that orbit around Jupiter. Cool four of them that there's there's more of them but he managed to see four of them and he also managed to demonstrate that the phases of venus that has phases like the moon basically have to do with the fact that it's not rotating around the earth right so, uh oh oh no if you if you recall your uh, bliss in which you were thinking about celestial spheres and the ether and stuff, I remember it well. It was lovely. Sometimes wasn't it? I like to go back there. I know who doesn't, but you know if you think about it, if they were made of ether, they wouldn't really have craters, would they? No. Or spots. No. And if the Earth was at the center of the universe, which is what Aristotle thought the moons wouldn't go around Jupiter, would they? No. And Venus wouldn't have phases. So this was tricky and got him into trouble. Funny thing about this, some people were, well, some people were amazed by these discoveries. Other people not so much and were trying to find ways to make him wrong. One of the one of the objections was that his lenses were stained, <laughs> so he would see things that were not there. So that was one of it. And when when one of his detractors died, Galileo wrote that perhaps having ignored the real structure of the stars and while he was on Earth, on his way to heaven, he might have a look and verify. <laughs> Burn. But no lenses involved. <laughs> yeah, so bigger picture on physics. Galileo achieved two important results in physics. The first being that he substituted Aristotelian physics with all its Byzantine stuff with... All the fire and earth and water and air and all that uh, sort of business. Yeah. And ether. And, and other things that have inspired prog rock musicians throughout <laughs> history um, with just one thing that has not inspired many people but it's really just all there is and that thing is matter mm -hmm. so he said everything is made of the same stuff 
And that was revolutionary at the time. The second thing has to do with motion. Aristotle thought that the natural state of objects is to be still. Okay. They would move only as they're pushed, which obviously creates problems, right? Because it means that if you're tossing your pies to the giant worm... <laughs> not a euphemism. Not a euphemism. Then how do those pies get there? You know, they're in your hand or in your pie cannon that you have developed for it. And then they are pushed by the pie cannon and then they're in the air. How do they move towards the giant worm? That's a really silly thing to say then because he must have, in his life, pushed things and watched them roll. Yes. And in fact, he came up with very abstruse explanations of why this is. Like, the air would change behind the thing that was being thrown and push it somehow. It was not working. <laughs> well, Galileo just came up with the law of inertia. So, okay. there are forces. Mm. Galileo's world was made of matter and forces. That's handy. That's handy, right? Yeah. That works. And, and when was he doing this? 16 something, as in uh, he developed it over his mm. career. But yeah, basically he died in 1642. So between 1534 and 1642. So and another thing that is really important about this force business is that instead of all these principles, he thought that the thing that made motion possible was heaviness. And you know how you say heaviness in Latin? No. Gravitas. <laughs> ah, gravitas. So we've heard that before. We have. So that's a, a little seed of the idea of gravity that was developed later by Newton. So, you know, that, that is such a revolutionary thing to say at mm. the time. And that was the beginning of what was eventually known as the scientific revolution that made modern science a thing because before it was just people saying things yeah clearly <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and waving their togas at each other yeah exactly my toga is more impressive <laughs> well you must be right i'm so sorry <laughs> so he was a very impressive chap there is one thing that he got spectacularly wrong okay and that also got him into trouble and you're like <laughs> the one thing that is stupid when he went to trouble. And that is his theory of tides. He thought that since the Earth is not still, we know now, because mm. it travels around. By the way, he didn't come up with the idea that the Earth was traveling around the Sun, just to be specific. He was supporting Copernicus's idea mm -hmm. on that. So Copernicus had already published. The Revolutionibus, which was about the revolution of the Earth mm -hmm. around the Sun. And I bet that went down really well as well. Oh yeah, we're going <laughs> to get to that. That was thumbs up all over the place. Yeah. So, you know, starting from this standpoint, it means that the water on the Earth also moves around. Basically, the tides were Earth's water sloshing around in the oceans like you would if you fill up a pan with water and you move it around and your water goes bloop, bloop, bloop. Ah. Which is not, not what quite it right. is. No, clearly not. But, you know, it's a pretty major mistake. Ooh. 
Rwanda covered. So at some point, he moved to the University of Padua to become a mathematics professor, and this was in uh, 1592. And he brought all his gownlessness uh, <laughs> with him, and there he met a lady, mm -hmm. which was impressed by the beauty of his undergown. <laughs> Um, her his name... gownless visage. <laughs> exactly. And probably also his humour, because he was a funny man. He was a nice person to be around. And uh, her name was Marina Gamba. They fell in love. She lived in Venice. They never lived together or got married, which was sort of normal for professors at the time. They used to be bachelors. But they had three children, and he did give them his surname and so officially they were his children. Two were daughters, so Livia and Virginia, and a son whose name was Vincenzo, like Galileo's dad. Because he hadn't learnt the previous lesson on <laughs> confusing reuse of names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this family gave him a lot of headaches. <laughs> The two daughters ended up in a convent and changed, obviously, their names because they were nuns. So Livia became uh, Suor Arcangela and Virginia became Suor Maria Celeste. And in particular, he had a really good relationship with Maria Celeste. There's a um, book in which all their letters uh, were published and they were really affectionate letters in which... Maria Celeste would asking for little favours, for instance. So mm -hmm. at some point, the clock in the convent broke, so he went over there to fix it. And you can imagine how important that would have been in a convent at the time, because you need to know when to get up, when to pray and, and whatnot. So the convent was in complete disarray until <laughs> Galileo showed up and fixed the <laughs> clock. She would send him little gifts like, you know, two preserved pears or uh, iron his collars and things like this. While he would send her little treats like wild game from his property mm -hmm. or a buffalo mozzarella, for instance. Nice. And there's, there's actually quite a lovely anecdote on buffalo mozzarella because Maria Celeste was mocked by her fellow nuns because she thought that buffalo mozzarella was made of buffalo. <laughs> so she did not quite understand what that was about. I think that's a confusion which continues to this day. So that's quite, uh, that's quite endearing. <laughs> yeah, um, but she liked it mm. eventually. And also there was this little sitcom between the two sisters because Suara Candida, uh, Livia, was quite the troublemaker. Mm -hmm. And she was lazy and she didn't want to do anything. And she would say that she was sick and she would say that her roommate wasn't nice. And so she needed to have her own room and that cost money. And Galileo had to intervene and Maria Celeste had to kind of mediate. It was quite messy situation all in all. Like you'd think that you put your two daughters in a convent, you're fine. <laughs> no. Also, at the time you had to pay rent for the convent. So he had to pay for both of them to live in the convent. He also had really poor health, which partly had to do with his sight. So he became uh, almost blind later in life 
but also he had chronic uh, arthritis. And this happened after quite an interesting episode, which is not particularly relevant to his science, but it's quite an interesting story. So apparently at the time, there was a system of air conditioning in big villas where you would have pipes coming up from underground caves. They would, they would run around rooms upstairs and just circulate uh, cooler air during okay. the summer months. Sounds quite, this underground cave situation sounds quite Batman. Yeah. <laughs> and normally servants would open and close the ducts as, as necessary. So at some point, Galileo was staying over at one of his friends in one of these villas and the servant forgot to shut the duct that went to the cave at a certain point in the night. And so they slept in a really cold room after having been outside. And that's thought to have had some repercussions on his uh, arthritis, okay. essentially. And because of that event, some of the people who were sleeping in the villa as well died. So it's wow. not really clear what happened there, but there might have been some kind of poisonous gas coming from the case. Yeah, some kind of gas leak, yeah. Yeah. So it's quite a fascinating thing. Anyway, he was, he was not well. He had to deal with these two daughters. Plus, he had to pay the dowry for his sister which technically he was sharing with his brother, but his brother wouldn't pay anything because he just didn't. So he would, he had this debt going on. And plus his son Vincenzo was terrible. <laughs> so he wanted to study law at Pisa, but then he was just spending money and not really doing anything. Then he managed to find a canonry in Brescia, which is in the north near the Alps. That came with a pension and Vincenzo basically just had to be there. He didn't have to do anything. But Vincenzo went, nah, <laughs> not my scene. So Galileo also had to find someone else to go in the canonry. So As, Galileo's to-do list was getting longer and longer. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, his brother, who was the one that theoretically should have paid the dowry for his sister, didn't do it who was living in Germany and was also a musician and was also skint, had a wife and eight children. And as the war was breaking out in Germany, went, can I just send you a couple of children? Because I just can't handle all of this. And Galileo said, yeah, fine, just send me the children. And next thing you know, he found himself with the wife of his brother, Anna Chiara, all the eight children and the nanny. <laughs> and at this point, he was 63. Right. Which, it, it was quite the age at the time. Yeah. I mean, it is now. Yeah. So, yeah, so he had to take care of yet another one of these children who also was named Vincenzo and wanted to be a musician. And so he sent him to study music in Rome, but he was also lazing around. Like, basically everyone else apart from Galileo and in his family were terrible. <laughs> um, and Maria Gilles. She was okay. Maria Gilles was lovely. Yeah, she was a bit whiny at times. <laughs> Uh, if you ask me, but there you go. She was like, she was a bit passive aggressive as well. Like, I mean, I don't want to say this about my sister, but she's a pain in the ass. And I was a bit <laughs> like that. At least his son managed to marry well. So he did one, one thing right. And he married Cecilia Bocchinieri, whose family was related to the Tuscan court, the court of the Medici. So at least he was fine. We were saying that all this obviously cost him money. 
the way he would make some extra money was by developing tech. Okay. The, the most successful thing that he developed was a um, geometric compass that was basically like two rulers kept together at one end and a pivot in, in between. Mm -hmm. It was a very versatile instrument. It could be used as a pocket calculator and people would use it for all sorts of things like calculate exchange rates so he could sell it to uh, people in commerce in Venice. You could calculate square root, which apparently was very useful in military strategy. So the way you would arrange troops on the battlefield mm -hmm. was calculated with square roots. And also how much charge you should put in a cannon. Okay. Because obviously it depends on what you're pushing out of the cannon. It sounds like the kind of thing that nowadays would be sold by JML and have a little in-store video in Robert Dias. <laughs> The, the geometric calculator from JML. It does exchange rates. It was quite It does square roots. Why not lay out your battlefield? Load a cannon. The geometric calculator from Galileo Industries. <laughs> yeah, so eventually the demand for this thing was so high that he had to hire someone to make them. Great. And this guy lived with him for a while. <laughs> so. That was it. So yeah, I think that's it for Galileo's messy personal life. <laughs> You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. The thing that Galileo is probably mostly famous for was pissing off the church. At the time, obviously, the church was very powerful. The Pope was in Rome, mm -hmm. as is now. So even though all these states were separate, they were united, in a sense, by the church. Yes, because the church had, as well as a secular influence, because the, the Pope was also the head of state in the, in the Vatican, mm -hmm. uh, which at the time included the whole of Rome. It was not the tiny bit. Yeah. He was also obviously the spiritual leader of the Western world. At the time where the Inquisition was the armed branch of the spiritual leader of the Western world. <laughs> and it was armed with torture devices yeah you know it was that sort of environment it was not the middle ages so it was not as bad as it used to be but they were still very powerful and they were still trialing people on ideological grounds the torture devices had decoration on them yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> they were probably a bit more sophisticated <laughs> which i'm not sure is a good thing for a torture device galileo was never tortured uh, by the way but he was lucky People had already been burnt at the stake for this kind of reason. Uh, for instance, Giordano Bruno in Italy had been burnt, burnt at the stake for his ideas on how planets worked. So it was very serious to have some beef with the church at the time. So what happened? Galileo was told off by the church twice. So the first time was in 1616. Copernicus, at this point, had already published the De Revolutionibus, and that's the Latin name. In English, it's On the Revolution of the Heavenly Orbs, mm -hmm. which put the sun at the center of the universe. Well, the known universe at the time, and described the motion of planets around the sun. The 
sacred congregation of the Index had already condemned it by 1616. At this point, Galileo was already known for his sympathies for Copernicus because of all the sunspots and mm. the observations and the motion and etc. And the church didn't really appreciate this. And there was obviously a written record of this through letters and early works. It's kind of like if one half of the proclaimers have been put in jail for pledging to walk 1,000 miles, <laughs> the other one would be quite nervous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so at this point he had already published the discourse on floating bodies, the letters on the sunspots. So he was exposed. In 1614, he was officially accused of heresy. And in 1616, he was forbidden from teaching or advocating these theories that supported the Copernican view of the world. This includes, by the way, the theory on the tides. Okay. So it's With, not all bad news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because implicitly that um, that entails a Copernican view of the cosmos. Yeah. Um, the sloshing wouldn't be possible in an Aristotelian world. And Cardinal Bellarmino, was a, who was one of the people who judged Galileo's work, was also a bit dubious about this sloshing business, <laughs> which I think is fair enough, to be honest. <laughs> but still, I don't think worth a trial no in the meantime so you know Galileo said sure come 1632 so 15 years later 16 he was called by the church again because in the meantime he had published a dialogue concerning the two chief world systems which is a book and as the title says it's a dialogue between two main characters mm -hmm one of which supports a Copernican view of the, um, of the world and the other one a more traditional Aristotelian, Aristotelian view. And so it's supposed to be a balanced assessment. But one of the characters is called um, Cleverus McCleverson and the other character is called Stupid O Stupido. <laughs> you know what, that is actually true. Really? <laughs> so the guy who supports the Aristotelian <laughs> Theory is called Simplicio, which in Italian translation is like simpleton. <laughs> so he was not subtle, Galileo. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty clear <laughs> where Galileo stood on this. Yeah. So he was called again, and the Pope went, Look, I've already got a lot on my plate. <laughs> plague. There's these Medici people, they're just trying to get in my game all over the place, they're trying to get Urbina from me, they're trying to marry people so that I can't get my territory that belongs to me and everyone knows that. Spain, don't get me started on Spain. Why on earth do you have to go on and on about this stupid business? So he summons Galileo to Rome, who was quite old at, the, at this point. The last thing you want is to go to Rome where the plague is sort of waning. Right, yeah. Consider that up to, the, up to this point, it was even difficult for people in the church to read Galileo's work because 
every everything that came into Rome was looked at by police forces, mm-hmm. effectively. Right? Not really police, it was the army. And they would burn paper because they thought that paper was the thing that was kind of bringing the plague in. So all the books <laughs> were burnt. Okay. So there needs there need to be subterfuges for, for things to be obtained in, in Rome. And in all this, mice were fine. <laughs> it was like... Mouse, go. Mouse, uh, go. Book, book or mouse? Uh, mouse. Okay, go for it. Book or mouse? Book. Ooh. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to need to take that off you. Yeah, that was really going to it. <laughs> and obviously the mice were the real cause of the plague. Hmm. The, the real cause of the spread of the plague. So there was a bit of back and forth and there's eventually Galileo goes to Rome after a bit of resistance and trying to pull some strings, but didn't really work. He is convicted eventually by the Inquisition. Again, he is not believed to have been tortured or anything like that. But he did apologise and withdraw his support for the Copernican theory. So he was sentenced to life imprisonment, but he was allowed to have basically house arrest. Okay. So he was in his villa in Arcetri, in, in the Tuscan countryside, mm-hmm. a beautiful place, where he made wine. Oh, um, nice. And it was very close to the convent where his daughters were. So well, while he was in Rome, his uh, daughter, Maria Celeste, was taking care of his villa and his small okay. holding um, as well. So at that point, she'd achieved enough status that she was able to leave the convent to do that. No, she would do it through this um, this man whose name was Jerry. Okay. So uh, Mr. Jerry would go to Maria Celeste and say, because she could have visits, mm. and would say there was a problem with, I don't know, grapes, and she would just tell him what to do. While Galileo was in Arcetri, in his villa, he was going blind, as I said earlier, but he still continued to write. And eventually... He managed to publish something, dun, 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 which he shouldn't have done. <laughs> no. So in 1638, he published the Discourses Concerning Two New Sciences, which was about the laws of motion and principles of mechanics, mm-hmm. stuff he shouldn't have touched. <laughs> but he did it. So how did he do it? This is actually quite... An interesting story. So he was not supposed to receive guests because no, he wasn't he was house, arrest. house arrest. But he did, amongst which people like uh, John Milton, the poet, uh-huh. and Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher. Cool. I uh, went to see him, and at some point, he received a man called Louis Elsevier, which, if anyone is familiar with academic publishing, they will recognize his name because um, nowadays there is um, there is a publishing house that's called Elsevier uh, which is also Dutch and it, it's not a direct descendant of what this guy was doing but it's inspired to mm-hmm. this guy and this is a good reason for it so he was a publisher and he went to visit Galileo which is quite a long journey considering he lived in yeah. the Netherlands yeah but it was also meeting with one of the biggest authors mm. of the time. You know, it was it, it was an amazing opportunity for him. 
So basically, Galileo managed to publish through Elsevier. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to read from the dedication at the beginning, Galileo's official version of the facts. <laughs> okay. So this is at the beginning of the book that he managed to publish while he was going blind in under house arrest. Yes. He said he was writing it just because why not? <laughs> what else are you going to do? You're on house arrest. I mean, you know you're probably not going to publish it. But... He needs to take a break from all this winemaking. Well, exactly. And drinking. And drinking. He did like his wine. So he said, yeah, so I made, I made some copies of this and prepared some other copies to send to Germany, Flanders, sorry, Holland, England, Spain, and perhaps also to some place in Italy where I was notified by the Elzevirs that they had this work of mine in press and that I must therefore decide about the dedication and send them promptly my thoughts on that subject. From this unexpected and astonishing news, <laughs> I concluded that it had been your excellencies, so the person to which the dedication is dedicated, mm -hmm. wish to elevate and spread my name by sharing various of my writings. And then he says, for it is you who have thought to increase my fame by having these works spread their wings freely under an open sky, when it, it appeared to me that my reputation must surely remain confined within narrower spaces. <laughs> so, how did this happen? <laughs> I just sent a few copies out and lo and behold, now it's being printed. <laughs> So what really happened was that there was this guy whose name was Micancio and was a friar, so also part of the church, who lived in Venice, that acted as a messenger between Arcetri and Holland. Mm -hmm. So he would go visit Galileo, get bits of the dialogue. Sorry, and he was course. a friar, so I mean, what a good person to visit Galileo and keep him on, on task. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Galileo also had religious tasks to do. Like, he had to repeat a psalm every week and stuff like that. Mm. So, so, so um, Mikamsi would go visit Galileo, get some of these chapters so he could read them in advance, which obviously was juicy for him. <laughs> so he'd get a little sneak preview. And then went to Holland and brought them to Elsevier. And that's how the discourse got published. They just smuggled it out bit by bit. Bit by bit. Through the... Yeah. This is quite an amazing publishing story, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's also a story of, of courage on the part of Elsevier. I mean, he was, he was in Holland, so um, they had the Protestant church there by then. Yeah. So it's not like he was under any real danger but you're still. still defying some powerful forces yes forces that didn't mind hurting people exactly <laughs> an interesting thing is what was the relationship between galileo and the church I, one would assume that it wasn't that good mm. which at this point obviously he wasn't uh, it wasn't but galileo was actually a profoundly religious person and so was Copernicus. De Revolutionibus was dedicated to the Pope at the time, who was Paul III. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can just imagine how, that, how well that worked. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't have. I mean, you really shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And imagine how Copernicus felt once <laughs> somebody came there and went, um, you know that 
something you did. Um, so, yeah, there, there must have been a really awkward moment. Galileo thought that the universe was written in mathematical language, which is why he wanted mathematics to be part of physics. Mm -hmm. And that this was the language of God. So the way God had coded the universe somewhat. So God's a nerd. God's a nerd! And when he managed to survive the proper trial in, in 1632, the first thing he did was start pray, starting to pray to the Virgin Mary. So there was this, um, this, this shrine to the Virgin Mary in Loreto, which was said, okay, just bear with me on this one, was said to have been flown to Italy on angel wings <laughs> from Palestine. Okay. So that was the house where Virgin Mary was born and that had been flown to Italy. <laughs> well, that and, is pretty miraculous. So, yeah, yeah. fair enough. And it's he was, probably legit. Yeah, that yeah. Sounds, sounds good to me. And he was praying to this. Okay. So, you know, he, he was religious and, and he thanked the Virgin Mary for, um, you know, for surviving, essentially. And two years later, he even went there on pilgrimage, even though he was not super young anymore. So how did they rationalize this? Because that, that's the big question, right? It's like he had this scientific truth that clearly contrasted with what the church was teaching. But also he believed in God and was a devout Christian. His idea was that the Bible was to be seen in its historical context. It was something that had been written at a specific time for a specific audience, hence in a specific language and saying certain things. And he thought that the work on the Bible should have been done at the level of interpretation. So that when there was a discrepancy between scientific truth and the metaphysics that seems to be implied in the Bible, you should reinterpret the Bible in a way that matches the scientific truth. Because, you know, scientific truth for him was just as divine as the Bible. Mm. Because if you think that you're reading the mind of God, th there has to be compatibility between the two things. Which and, I... and, and from his point of view, he's reading the mind of God directly, whereas he knows that the people who've written the Bible aren't. And it's got, it, it, he's skipped a step. He's not going through people, whereas when you're reading the Bible, you are so, and he knows that people are flawed, and so you can kind of see why he why he thinks it should go that way around. Yeah, you, you can see where he's coming from. It's a very uncatholic thing to do, because the directly reading the Bible is not exactly Catholic rule number one. It's a very Protestant attitude if you think about it. But yes, that was that was his attitude. Another interesting thing came out of this. I mentioned uh, Cardinal Bellarmino earlier was part of the commission who judged him. He said that the scientific truth is not an exact description of how things are, but it's just a model of reality that helps us to predict events. And this is actually a position that some people still hold, and it's still quite defeasible 
in many ways. I won't go into it in this episode. We'll probably talk about it down the line. It's a, it's a position called instrumentalism, instrumentalism or anti-realism. And it basically started here because he said the Bible has to do with metaphysics while science is more of a tool to understand reality. And now, the references. So obviously, I haven't made this up. This is supposedly kind of true. I haven't collected information from Renaissance archives in Florence. <laughs> I probably would have noticed. I might notice you popping out for that. <laughs> um, I've used books and websites for this. One of the most interesting sources, I think, is a book on the relationship between... Galileo and his daughter Maria Celeste, which it's a book in which all the letters that have remained that we have access to have been collected. And there's also a lot of information on Galileo's life as a result. It's a lovely book and it's called Galileo's Daughter and was written by Davos Hobel. I've used other sources, which I'm not going to list here because it would be very long and very boring, but you can find a complete list on our website, which is called wondercupboard.com that you can also get in touch with us yeah get in touch with us we're on facebook we've become on facebook yeah like the cool kids you can just search for wonder cupboard and also on twitter at wonder cupboard it's all very consistent send us a message why not so smuggle a message out of your household onto twitter with a the help of a local friar <laughs> So what have we learned today, Ian? Uh, we've learned that um, don't wear a gown if you want to have sex at university. <laughs> Wonder Cupboard.